Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word this morning, we pray that it would be proved to be manna from heaven and that, Lord, you would feed us this morning. Lord, I pray that there would be something for everybody to, today that we might be able to take away and speak to us where we are at this moment in time. In Jesus' name. Amen. Can you open up your Bibles, please, to um, Judges? Can you open your Bibles, please, to the book of Judges, chapter 12? Sunday mornings when I'm teaching, we're going through the book of Judges. Last time we were looking at Jephthah. Uh, we're continuing with a little bit more of Jephthah and then on to the 10th, 11th and 12th Judges before uh, next time going into the life of uh, Samson. Now, Gideon was the sixth judge. Then it was Tola and Jair, seventh and eighth judges. And in Judges chapter 10, verse 6, we read a line. Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And you may remember that I said that this phrase is always used to indicate Israel had entered a new cycle of sin. And there would be seven cycles of sin during the lifetime of the judges. And at this moment in time, as we are in the life of Jephthah, we are in the middle of the sixth cycle. Now, there was typically five stages to a cycle of sin. Uh, there was rest, then followed by rebellion, then retribution, then repentance, and then restoration. A nice little alliteration for us. So rest. Israel would be living under the rest of a divine government of a judge. Then the cycle would shift to rebellion. A new generation would arise and that generation would rebel against God they would apostatize and enter into idolatry. Then would come the third stage of the cycle, retribution. And the Lord brings divine retribution by means of a foreign invader into the land of Israel. And under Jephthah, that foreign invader was the Ammonites. Under Gideon, it was the Midianites. Then would come the fourth uh, stage to the cycle of sin, repentance. And Israel would cry out to the Lord for help uh, in an act of repentance. And then would come the fifth cycle of the uh, stage of the cycle of sin, restoration. The Lord would raise up a judge to deliver Israel and then would govern a restored people. And thus they would enter back to the first stage again, a period of rest. And they went round this cycle seven times during the lifetime of the judges. Now, the foreign invader that came with the sixth cycle was the Ammonites. These are the descendants of Lot, a Semitic people, uh, and they're from a land east of the Transjordan tribe. So the Transjordan tribes are east of uh, the Jordan, and then further east you would have Ammon. And they oppressed Israel for 18 years. It took Israel 18 years to cry out to the Lord for help in repentance, which shows you how deep the rebellion and the idolatry went. And you'll find that as we go through the book of Judges, the length of time of oppression grows longer and longer, which is an indicator of how the heart of Israel was getting harder and harder, that it was taking even longer uh, per cycle to cry out to the Lord for help. Now, in response to Israel's cry to the Lord for the help, the Lord raised up a man named Jephthah to be the ninth judge. Jephthah's father was from Gilead, of the half tribe of Manasseh and his mother was a harlot and uh, that put uh, Jephthah in a bit of a 
difficult position. That stigma didn't make him popular. And his half-brothers, uh, at the first opportunity, rose up against him, forcing Jephthah to flee his home to the land of Tob. Tob is east of Gilead, near Ammon, and it was like the Wild West, you might remember me telling you about. And Jephthah drew a band of men to him, and he kind of became the troubleshooter of Tob, a gun for hire, helping to deliver people of difficult situations. And when the Ammonite oppression became too much, a delegation from Gilead came and asked this troubleshooter of Tob for help. And while initially reluctant due to past grievances, Jephthah accepted. And on the, on the time of his acceptance, uh, he was appointed both the commander of the army, but also head of the people of Gilead. Jephthah duly defeated the Ammonites, but not before he made a rash vow to God in return for uh, securing a victory. Now, Jephthah made the mistake of thinking you can make a deal with God. And if you do this for me, I'll do this for you type of deal. And let me make it clear, you do not make deals with God. It, God is the one who calls the shots. It is our duty to obey. It's his way or hit the highway. And the thing is, the Lord had already anointed Jephthah with the Holy Spirit. There was no need for a vow. God had raised him up and positioned him to be a victor. So there's a sense of a, a, almost a doubt, a lack of faith there in Jephthah, a kind of misstep. Now, the vow stated in exchange for victory, he would sacrifice the first thing that came out of his home, his house when he got home. No doubt he thought that would be an animal, perhaps that pesky cat he never liked or maybe even his mother-in-law. I don't know. But shock horror. It was his one and only the apple of his eye, his beloved daughter that came out to greet him. And while there is a degree of ambiguity in the text as to whether he'd went through and sacrificed his daughter or not, on balance, I think Jephthah went through with a vow, depriving him of offspring and leaving the rest of his days to be lived in bitter sorrow. But, and that's where we left things last time, but we're not done with Jephthah. There is an epilogue to his life, and this concludes with a conflict with the people of Ephraim. Now, if you remember, Jacob, who was renamed by God as Israel, had 12 sons, each of whom had became the head of the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and they became the heads of the half tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim. And when the people of Ephraim came into conflict with the people of Manasseh, of whom Jephthah is now the head, we not only have a civil war, but we have a family feud going on as well. Jephthah of Manasseh and the people of Ephraim come together. There's conflict and there is civil war. That's what this chapter is going to be telling us about. Now, this conflict surrounds the accusation that Jephthah went to war against the Ammonites without their involvement. And thus Ephraim was deprived of military glory and uh, the victor's spoil. And the men of Ephraim had previous when it comes to this type of thing. During the time of Gideon, back in Judges chapter 8, when the Lord over, overthrew the Midianites, we read in Judges 8 verse 1, Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why had you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? 
and they reprimanded him sharply. So Ephraim were late to the party. They blamed Gideon for not calling them to come and fight against the Midianites and they spoke very severely to Gideon. Instead of saying, you know, thank you for delivering us from the seven years of Midianite oppression, Ephraim charged Gideon for some great slight against their tribe. Why did you not call us to fight with you? The fact that the Ephraimites had seven years to prove themselves is neither here nor there. And the fact that they are arriving late to the party, acting like the wounded martyr, is pretty rich, all things considered. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they deserve to have their freeloading butts kicked into touch. But Gideon takes the diplomatic approach. I'm clearly not a Gideon. And he calms their anger and placates them. As it says in Proverbs 15, verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath. And uh, certainly that is something that I need to learn to develop a soft answer to turn away wrath instead of rushing in where angels fear to tread. And uh, now here in chapter 12 of Judges, we are 50 years further on from the incident with Gideon. And we find that after 50 years, the character of the Ephraimites has not changed. If anything, they've grown worse. They're still late to the party. They still lay it on thick with their accusations. They're still trying to freeload their way into a name in the history books. And they're still full of pride and anger. But while Gideon went for a diplomatic solution, Jephthah will go for a military solution. And Ephraim are going to learn the hard way not to cross the double shooter of Tob, the troubleshooter of Tob. Okay, Judges chapter 12, verse 1. Then the men of Ephraim gathered together, crossed over toward Zaphon, and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon, and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you with fire. That's nice, isn't it? So we read, then the men of Ephraim gathered together. The term gather together means to muster, as in to muster an army. So this is not a diplomatic delegation. And you can probably tell that by their language, there's nothing diplomatic in what they're saying whatsoever. This is this is a group with hostile intentions. And we know that there are over 42,000 men in this company. And we're told they crossed over towards Zaphon. Ephraim's tribal territory was on the west of the Jordan River, Jephthah was on the east of the Jordan River and the Ephraimites crossed the Jordan to meet Jephthah at a place called Ziphon. They would have crossed using a ford and uh, a ford is a place along a river away from the bends where the river is wide and shallow enough to cross. And, and this is what they said. Why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon and did not call us to go with you? Their accusation is one of exclusion. Why did you leave us out? They clearly consider themselves the most important tribe. And for them, not being called on to fight, being left out is a great insult to them. And they, they, they have, uh, they have a, a accusation to level against Jephthah here. But the accusation is accompanied with a threat. They say, we will burn your house down on you with fire. We're going to kill you, Jephthah, for... Uh, excluding us by burning your house down with you in it. So, yeah, not much wiggle room there for negotiation. Um, their intentions are plain and clear. 
and Ephraim over 50 years have got more arrogant, more angry and uh, more aggressive. So let's read Jephthah's response, verses two to three. And Jephthah said to them, my people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon. And when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. So when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivered them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? So Jephthah provides the men of Ephraim with a fivefold response. The first response is in that, that line. And Jephthah said to them, my people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon. Jephthah uh, first clarifies the situation he was facing. This was no small conflict. This was no, no local trouble. We were in a great, we were in great strife. This was an imposing people. They were causing us tremendous harm. For 18 years, we were facing this oppressive uh, force from Ammon, which ruined our, our way of life. We were in a great struggle. So he's, he's trying to bring clarity to the situation he was facing. He goes on and uh, he then says, and when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. So Jephthah's second response is to set the record straight and say he did call them for help. You know, far from the fault and the failure laying at Jephthah's feet in this matter, the fault and the failure clearly lies at the feet of the men of Ephraim. You know, when, when we needed you, you were nowhere to be seen. Where were you when we needed you? We were in great strife. We'd been oppressed by the Ammonite for 18 years and we needed you and you weren't there. And now you dare accuse me of not including you how dare you and you I'm getting myself a little bit excited you can you can bet Jephthah was getting excited about the matter and so he goes on in his third response and says so when I saw that you would not deliver me I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon so Jephthah's third response is to say he had to take action without Ephraim we couldn't wait any longer for the no-show tribe of Ephraim you left us standing. You left me with no choice. I had to act. And so Jephthah lays it clearly down on the line. He had no choice. We had to cross over and fight the people of Ammon. And then he goes on and his fourth response perhaps is the best response. And he says, and the Lord delivered them into my hand. Jephthah's fourth response gives glory to God. Yes, Gilead secured victory, but not because of the might of Jephthah, but because of the might of the hand of the Almighty. And if we want to secure victory in our life, we need to have the hand of the Almighty at work in our lives. But, you know, I feel as if there's an undercurrent of warning here. You see, not only does he give God the glory, he also points out God's on my side. And it's almost like, watch it. God is with me. And again, Gideon was diplomatic. He diffused situations. Jephthah, not so much. He was more confrontational. And you can just imagine him facing off uh, against uh, the Ephraimites right here now. And so his fifth and final response is, why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? He, he his fifth response is a rebuttal to the accusations of the men of Ephraim. 
He positions himself in the place of righteousness and the people of Ephraim in the place of sin. And basically says, what gives you the right to speak to me this way? How dare you come and oppose me? And now at this point, I think anybody who was in their right mind would go home with their tail between their legs. They would know of Jephthah's reputation and accomplishments, both in the world frontier and also against Ammon. And they would also know that Jephthah is facing off against them. He's using fighting talk and he has the strength to be able to carry through with his uh, with his uh, threats. But, you know, common sense doesn't appear to be one of Ephraim's strong suits. And so we read about a tribal war that occurs. Verse four. Now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, you Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. So this tribal dispute now escalates to tribal war. We read, now Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought against Gephraim. So Jephthah recalls his disbanded army and he takes up arms against Ephraim. And we read, and the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim. Jephthah had his second victory and Ephraim have learned their lesson. Having, to fail to, having failed to learn their lesson from their former encounter with Gideon, and instead of um, dealing with their anger and their pride, their anger and pride has grown, and so now they're treated in a much more harsh way. And the reason for the escalation to war is now made very clear. The Ephraimites hurled an insult at the men of Gilead. They said, you Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. Ephraim basically taunted the men of Gilead, calling them fugitives or refugees, runaways. You're a runaway. You're, a, you're an obscure group of people. You have no place in Ephraim or in Manasseh. You're not wanted by Ephraim. You're not wanted by Manasseh. You're a nobody. That's effectively what the Ephraimites are saying. And I've got to say, this must have struck a painful chord with Jephthah, who himself had been a refugee and a fugitive from his people who had been unwanted and not belonged. Yet the Ephraimites are soon made to eat their words. And specifics about the conflict and the tactics used are now elaborated on in Judges 12 verses 5 to 6. The Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. And when any Ephraimite who escaped said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, then say Shibboleth. And he would say Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. And there fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. So the Gileadites uh, seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. The Gileadites cut off the way of retreat from the men of Ephraim. And anyone identified as an Ephraimite was killed at those fords. And this is kind of ironic because back in the days of Gideon, it was Ephraim who had captured the fords and slaughtered the fleeing Midianites. Now the table is turned. And having insulted the Gileadites, calling them for a few fugitives, here now come the fleeing Ephraimites themselves, now fugitives. And a test was instituted to help identify where an approaching man uh, when an approaching man was an Ephraimite, um, they had to say the word.
the word shibboleth. But there seemed to be uh, a difficulty among the uh, children of Ephraim, um, some sort of speech impediment where they couldn't pronounce the sh sound and it came out s. So instead of saying shibboleth, it came out sibboleth. Much the same as, say, Germans can't pronounce the W. So, you know, do you want to watch a festen play with me? That's how it comes out. Or Jonathan Ross can't pronounce the R. Uh, when he's riding on a twain on a wow way, he listens to radio too. Um, or, you know, there's Simon, who doesn't seem to be able to pronounce an H. So on Sunday, he ops over to Enid's, then he ops home uh, to Abula Oops. Thus, the uh, fleeing Ephraimite was identified by virtue of their speech. And uh, the penalty was swift and severe. Then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. And there fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. Now, that's not to say that 42,000 Ephraimites were, were slain at the fords of the Jordan, but rather in total, uh, there were 42,000 Ephraimites, which is a terrible death toll. And really an indicator of how far in decline Israel was, that they so readily fought and killed one another. They're, they're, they're brothers. They're of the same family. They're, they were all children of the Lord, uh, all children of Israel. But one thing is certain. Ephraim never again made such arrogant insults or raised such offensive accusations. Now, this is a sorry chapter in the life of Israel. Jew fighting against Jew, brother against brother. And there is nothing worse than the people of God fighting one another. The enemy was Ammon and the enemy had been defeated. There was no reason to fight one another. They should be united in worshipping the Lord. Yet the selfish ambition of the Ephraimites and the wrath of the Gileadites led them to turn on one another. And thus the blood of Ammon was mingled with the blood of Ephraim. In Galatians 5, Paul is describing the difference between walking in the flesh and walking in the spirit. And as believers, we should have put away walking in the flesh and we should be walking in the spirit. Now, walking in the flesh is characterised by hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions and dissensions, according to Paul. Whereas walking in the spirit is characterised by love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, gentleness. And what we see in Israel is the flesh overtaking the spirit. And what a shame it is when we see the flesh overtaking the spirit in the body of Christ. When churches should unite in the shared goal of sharing the gospel and worshipping Jesus, they're dividing over secondary issues, promoting a social gospel and worshipping another Jesus. And oh, how the Lord must grieve, both in our day as in the days of Jephthah. Ephraim were wrong to level such a great accusation against Jephthah and the people of Gilead. Jephthah, after all, was God's anointed servant and Jephthah was God's appointed authority. And while he was far from perfect, accusations against God's anointed and appointed should not be undertaken lightly. I was reminded of 1 Timothy 5 verse 19, which says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. There should be respect for those in authority. Ephraim lacked that respect and they paid the price. 
So let's go on to uh, the remaining um, time of uh, the judges. Verse 7, And Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried among the cities of Gilead. The term of Jephthah's governance was a short six years. However, he made a big difference in a short term. He delivered Israel from the Ammonites. He subdued the Ephraimites and he established peace in Israel. He was a wartime judge. His management style was confrontational. His leadership style was militaristic. Then we go on to Ibzam, verses 8 to 10. After him, him Ibzam of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and he gave away 30 daughters in marriage and brought in 30 daughters from elsewhere for his sons. He judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. Now, the Bethlehem of Ibzan is not the Bethlehem of David and Jesus's birth. That was the Bethlehem of the south in Judah. There was another Bethlehem up north in Zebulun, and that was the, Ze uh, the Bethlehem that Ibzan came from. He was probably from the tribe of Zebulun. So the term of Ibzan's governance was one more year than Jephthah, seven years. And less is known about him, but we know he had 60 children, 30 boys and 30 girls. And of course, this reveals to us polygamy was at uh, practice in the land. Uh, but he, in contrast to Jephthah, was a peacetime judge. His management style was conciliatory. His leadership style was diplomatic. How do we know this? Well, because of his family, his family management. He married his daughters to men outside his tribe and he'd married to his, his sons to women outside his tribe. So he used what he had, his family, to make alliances and peaceful relations with the other tribes. After the conflict with Ephraim, between Ephraim and Gilead, he sought to bring peace. Ibsam used his family to create peace accords to safeguard against future conflicts. This uh, kind of is reminiscent to me of the actions of Prince Albert and Queen Victoria. After the Napoleonic Wars, they believed the marriage of their nine children among the royal families of Europe would safeguard against future conflicts. And uh, they had nine children and uh, they did marry them among the royal families of uh, Europe, so much so that Queen Victoria's descendants can be found in the remnants of the royal families of Germany, Russia, Greece, Romania, Sweden, Norway and Spain. However, sadly, their goal of safeguarding peace was not realised. Two of Queen Victoria's grandsons, George V of the United Kingdom and Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany, were on opposing sides in World War I, of course. But here was uh, Ibzam, a man of peace, uh, trying to maintain peace in the land. Then we go on to Elon, verse 11. After him, Elon, the Zebulonite, judged Israel, he judged Israel ten years, and Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ajalon in the country of Zebulun. The term of Elon's governance was ten years. He too was from Zebulun. He picked up uh, he picked up where um, Ibzan left off and he maintained the peace that had been established by Ibzan. Then we come to Abdon verses twelve to fifteen. Uh, no, sorry, verses 13 to 15. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirithonite, judged Israel. 
He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 young donkeys. He judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirithonite, died and was buried in Pirithon in the land of Ephraim in the mountains of the Amalekites. So the term of Abdon's governance was eight years. And here we have something good come from Ephraim. Someone from the city of Pirithon in Ephraim anointed to judge Israel. Bearing in mind the former conflict between Gilead and Ephraim, it's interesting, uh, it's interesting to note that there seems to be in a shift within Ephraim and something good comes forth from them. It's also interesting to note that a former judge from Gilead, Jair, he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. Now we have a judge from Ephraim, Abdon. He has 40 sons and 30 grandsons who ride on 70 donkeys. It's almost as if Abdon is trying to outdo Jair here. But uh, donkeys were the steeds of the rich. And what this communicates to us is that Israel is in a time of prosperity. After 30 years of peace under Jephthah, Ibzan and Elon and Abdon, Israel were prospering once more. And however, prosperity can cause people to take their eyes off the Lord. And I suspect that as the prosperity of Israel rose, so as the spirituality of Israel started to decline again. Because when we get into chapter 13 next time, we're going to see that Israel enter the seventh and final cycle of sin. They were not far from that place of God bringing retribution upon the people. So what can we say in closing? Well, there are a few things that we can draw from this passage. The first is a call to change. Ephraim demonstrated sinful behavioural sinful behavioral patterns. That they... But, uh, and that sinful behaviour patterns in Ephraim were first dealt with graciously and gently by Gideon. But after they failed to change, they were dealt with more firmly and aggressively uh, by Jephthah. And the Lord will identify sinful behavioural patterns in your life. Things that he wants to change. And he will give you the ability to change. He will convict you of your sin and bring you to repentance. And then he'll give you the spirit and enable you to deal with that. But you, it's not a case of just laying down your arms and God doing it for you. You need to work with the Lord. You need to put practices in place to be able to help guard your behaviour. And the Lord will first approach you graciously and gently. But if you fail to change, don't be surprised if the Lord approaches you a second time more firmly and more aggressively to deal with issues in your life. Yield to the Lord's will when you see it revealed in the word, so the Lord doesn't have to take you through hardship and trial to deal with that area in your life. The second thing we can draw from this passage is that there are differing leaders, but the same Holy Spirit works through them all. Jephthah and Ibzan contrasted each other in their leadership styles. One was more confrontational, the other more conciliatory. One was more militaristic, the other more diplomatic. But both were anointed with the Holy Spirit both were used by God. And the Lord calls and uses diverse types of leaders with differing management and leadership styles, depending upon the time and the season that they are called to. And the thing is, if they are called by God, if they are anointed by God, we should recognise that they are God's man. God uses different people for different times. 
The third thing we can take away is uh, Ephraim opposed divine appointed and anointed leadership. Jephthah was God's man. God had called him and anointed him and Ephraim opposed him. And we should be slow to criticise and confront divine appointed and anointed leadership. Now, where there is a difference between brothers, go to them. Show them the area of difference with the goal of seeking reconciliation, but not retribution. Romans 12, 18 says, if it is possible, as much depends on you, live peaceably with all men. We should be aiming to live at peace with one another and with those people in society as well. But let's be slow to confront leadership when it's clearly of God. And finally, peace and prosperity. From Jephthah through to Abdon, Israel experienced 31 years of peace and Israel experienced prosperity. But be sure to thank the Lord for the peace and the prosperity he brings you in your life. Guard that peace and make sure that it doesn't make you lazy in your service to God. And guard that prosperity to make sure it doesn't cause you to drift in your service to God. In other words, be diligent in serving the Lord because when things are going well, it's easy to stray. Make sure you come to the Lord regularly in the reading of the word, in times of prayer and in times of confession and in times of fellowship. Make sure you remain anchored to the Lord. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for those things that we've learnt of this day. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be those who are those who, who, who seek to maintain peace between our brothers and sisters but also, more importantly, maintain peace with you. In Jesus' name. Amen.